The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Kings 17, 17-24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Scott. Well, um, I don't know if you are like me, but I enjoy a good summer series, and uh, particularly uh, one that we're looking at now on Elijah, and I also enjoy a good TV summer series. Um, right now, at one of the shows that's getting some acclaim, it's been, people have been waiting on is this uh, series called Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Even if you um, are not a a nerdy Star Wars fan like myself, uh, you've probably heard that name maybe used in cultural reference, uh, or maybe saw some of the original Star Wars. He's a character that spans really uh, almost just like you would know Darth Vader or something like that, spans the life of that series. So any connection to the, the even the word Star Wars, you might hear him. He's a famous Jedi. And uh, this series in particular uh, has been long awaited because there's a lot of uh, gaps, like time gaps between movies. And so, geniusly done with a lot of money involved, uh, Disney and other people have said, let's go for it and t- tell stories of what is between all these series. What happens to all these characters? And one of the biggest is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, Obi-Wan Kenobi was one who spanned the life of when Darth Vader became Darth Vader to uh, many of the series we know, Luke and all, Leia and all those. But what's interesting about this series in particular is it catches Obi-Wan Kenobi in the middle between that. The empire, the evil empire has won. Uh, All the Jedi are either killed or in hiding, and he himself is in hiding, and it's all about what is he doing while he's in hiding. Very interesting, because his language is very much in despair. His life, he's talking about, we lost. Go back, live your life. Even Jedi that are looking to him as a leader, as he's been in the past, he's saying, just go live a normal life. And he can't. And he's, that's the whole series, drawn back into how does he hide and be on the run? And how does he care and live and, 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 and love those around him? The life of Elijah the prophet comes at a very interesting time, out of nowhere. It's almost like in the middle of two major stories happening. 
In fact, in chapter 17, we're reading a little further in the chapter. At the very beginning, it just says Elijah the Tishbite. He just like pops up out of nowhere, almost as if we're supposed to know him already. And you see him as he gradually interacts with the kings, with other people, as we see in this passage, who live throughout the kingdom and the story. But what's happening in that is there's great division. He's living and and brought into a time where once the kingdom of God, that is of Israel, was this great grand kingdom. Maybe you've heard names from the Bible like David or Solomon. They're no longer. And now the kings that rule and reign are kings that could really care less about what God thinks about the kingdom. And in fact, the kingdom itself has been divided between Israel and Judah. It's, it's this northern and southern kingdoms. There's a lot of despair, a lot of division, a lot of difficulty, a lot of movement, cynicism, hopelessness away from God. And here presents the Lord, his prophet Elijah, in the midst of it. And we get to study it. I, I got to be honest, I've actually never preached through a series on Elijah. I've looked at his life a few times, and I'm really excited about it. And I think for the reason, um, as I studied even for this week, was to think that Elijah and these kind of characters we think of, who's mentioned so many times, even in the New Testament, is often a figure that we pull out and we kind of see him as this cartoon character who's this larger than life person that speaks into the grand narrative of what's going on in the Bible. He's actually not. In fact, the Bible reduces who he is for us to understand that he is just like us, a person. And yet God used him. Yes, he's a righteous prophet that God lifted up. He's not without, but that we are to connect to him. In fact, the New Testament, you'll see today, uses over and over Elijah, not just to say, here's the righteous Elijah that you need to live to. He actually says, Elijah was a man just like you, who came to the Lord in prayer, who struggled, as we'll see, with depression, who wrestled with the the difficulty and idols around him, and what that meant for him, not just what the Lord wanted through him for them. And so we're going to look at this today as we see the life of Elijah, often talked about in the New Testament, but who is this figure? And we're going to look at him in this first kind of uh, passage of this chapter in two ways. One is, who's God's prophet? And also, what about God's power? So God's prophet and God's power. Simply put, it's kind of the introduction of who is Elijah. And it's funny, I was even here this morning, uh, <clears throat> and as I walked over, I was uh, over here on the side, and I was hearing a conversation. Surely you've had this before, where you walk in on a conversation where you're literally in the middle of it, and you're like, this is weird. I don't know how to insert myself in that. That's actually what's happening right here. So we're kind of coming into the middle of what's happening. It says, even at the beginning of uh, this Uh, passage we're reading, after this, now when it says after this, after what? (laughs) Well, there's been an enormous drought that's been going on. In fact, Elijah himself prayed for this drought because the king at the time, Ahab, was somebody who he and his wife Jezebel were actually trying to not only uh, get rid of the view and understanding of Yahweh, that is the Lord God and his worship, but they were actively trying to kill it off. And it says after this, being, being that, that there's a drought in the land, that, that 
Elijah prayed for, Lord, bring this drought. In fact, to say to Ahab, so you know the power of God, I'm gonna pray towards this end. He prayed this and there was no rain. And when we pick this back up, there's a lot going on here. Like I said, there's a divided kingdom. There's a time of this. And, and Ahab himself is one of these kings in a long line in 1 Kings, if you read through it. It ends with Solomon, and it begins with these kings that simply really kind of say, you know what, I'm going to kind of live this out how I want to live it out. You know, usually kings were supposed to write out, they actually were, were uh, told that they have to write out the law of God so that their hearts would begin to absorb it. Can you imagine sitting and writing the entirety of the Old Testament? <laughs> Particularly just the first five books of the Bible. Even the laws that you skip over, they were supposed to pin those out so that they would get accustomed to what is the wisdom of God towards how to run this kingdom that is his. And they decided, no, wisdom is in my hands. The, this kingdom doesn't revolve around God, it revolves around me, so I'm gonna do what I want. And that's essentially what they started doing. And in the midst of this, the Lord raises up his prophet, his spokesperson. Now, immediately when we say prophet, it might be like, okay, this is somebody who's able to predict things. and things. But a prophet wasn't so much somebody who was foretelling things, like saying, but forthtelling. In fact, this is what's really important to note is that the Bible spends a lot of time about what is a true and false prophet and how to spot that. You know why? Because there's always fake news out there. Okay, here's what's interesting. Even in the last, I was reading this, and this is, all of us have been swimming in this for a while, but even in the last year, the, the amount of, of, of uh, news stories and news content consumption that we've had has skyrocketed. And with that, the amount of fake news and other things has also gone up as well. So that we're consuming these things. And there are constant articles about, do you know what you're reading? The fact that uh, a lot of our uh, news content can come from either social media or other things sometimes can lead us down paths of fake news. And do we know what we're reading? And we do know. And, and many of us have become jaded because are we, do we know, is it true? Is it not? What are we reading? How to spot fake news. In fact, I was listening to a very interesting kind of uh, documentary, or maybe it was an interview of sorts, of a newspaper that began years ago um, and the way that they started thinking about how do we not just sell news, but how do we buy readers? And that that was the way they started doing it. So they were, and without apology, uh, this person being interviewed was like, yeah, I, I don't care if it's fake news. <laughs> they were like, aren't you sorry that these people are reading things that you think are true? But they, no, I'm buying readers. That's what it became. And that's very similar to this. The question is, how do we know is Elijah a true prophet? The Bible spends a lot of time on this, both in the Old and New Testament, for specifically this way in the Old Testament of the prophet, is two things. One is what they say lines up with what God is saying, his activity who his character is. And two is what they say about what God foretells, such as a drought or otherwise, comes to pass. And if either one of those things don't line up, you may not have a correct prophet. 
And this is key for us, specifically looking at the Bible. Look, we're reading from an ancient document. If you just stop for one second and think about this. We are reading from an incredibly ancient document that we are coming on a Sunday morning, come every week, to hear about that would shape our entire lives. Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of a crazy notion to think about, to say this document that has been written over centuries ago is a book that we're looking to to give us wisdom on how we live and see ourselves and see the world around us. How do we trust it? God raises up his prophet in the midst of all that's going on in this kingdom. And he gives us his word that he speaks so that we know it's, it's from him, not that the prophet is promoting himself, that it's consistent. So who is Elijah the Tishbite? Well, as I said, he came out of nowhere. A lot of people and commentators say there's not a whole lot given to us about who Elijah is. But one of the things that we do learn about him that he says that connects to how do we understand what God is saying to us is prayer. This is a really tough passage. If you kind of look at this passage for what it is, it begins in a really difficult place. Because after this widow and son have taken it in Elijah, and <clears throat> Elijah is with them, suddenly the son dies of a severe illness. And it's interesting because the way that Elijah handles this is very, very important for us to know. What is the distinction of how God handles such profound suffering and difficulty in our lives? There are people in our congregation that to the sensitivity of even this passage have lost children themselves. And we've seen that across not only our country, be it not just our own lives or our family, but we're seeing it, we're reading about it, we're hearing about it. What happens in this passage that is so beautiful for us to know and encouraging in the midst of such loss is what Elijah does with this prayer. That prayer is a major part of his life. And we're gonna actually see this throughout as we see it. But his prayer is dependent on his communication. Even when <clears throat> what he does when her son dies. Listen to what he says. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. Notice what he does. His crying out to the Lord. His prayers are full of not looking to give answers to her, and yet not without compassion, but connecting both himself to the Lord's heart and to their heart. Listen to what a commentator said, this, this very astute commentator said this beautifully. These words in which the word also refers to the other calamities occasioned by the drought contain no reproach of God, but are expressive of the heartiest compassion for the suffering of his benefactors and the deepest lamentation, which springing from living faith pours out the whole heart before God in the hour of distress. What this commentator is saying is that Elijah in this moment, 
being taken in by somebody who's completely foreign to him, how does he show that God is distinct? God is who he is. He shows it by connecting, A, his heart to God, crying out. Notice twice, he, it says he cried out to God. If we're wondering what prayer really is, it's a deep, profound crying out. That means relational element to knowing who God is. It means in the most difficult of times and seasons that our heart comes from us to someone that we can, we can cry out to, we can get mad at, we can talk to in a, in a way that, that t- says he wants to know us. He's different than what you're used to in every other voice or thing around you. And that he not only has a connection of his heart to God, but to this family, his deepest compassion. Well, there's a book, a really great book on prayer. It's a large book. It's written by a guy named Tim Keller, who's, I've, you've probably heard his name a lot. He's a pastor in, uh, out of New York City. But he, he talks about the difference between mysticism or meditate, just wrote meditation and what prayer is. And he says, mysticism plays down the difference between God and the person praying. So in other words, when what prayer is, isn't just some wild communication, hoping that we connect to somebody. It's actually a deep, profound relational to the other, to someone who is greater than us. That Elijah is bringing into their life someone who cares and knows them. And they're not used to that. In fact, you can tell by the way the widow responds, even in this, as she says, she says, um, uh, in verse 18, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. What she's essentially saying there is, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, and why are you showing me my punishment for my sin? Essentially, she's saying, this is what she thinks God does. That God is, he's a give and take. I ask from him here, he gives me here. Very transactional, just like we think in so many ways. But he's saying, no, no, no. And as he cries out, he doesn't answer her immediately. He simply picks up the boy. He enters in. He shows action. In fact, over and over, it says that the prophets are not just people who speak, but they show action. Even in the stretching out upon this boy, but even picking him up, carrying him up, that the power of prayer is real because it's ultimately what we think about who God is. And oftentimes we can think about prayer as us throwing a rope up to God and pulling him down. But as many have said before, it's actually God pulling us up to him. A great author, Paul Miller, spoke this way about our prayers. He says, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. In fact, James, in the New Testament, James, there's a book, James, who who writes, and when he finishes his whole letter, he talks about what does it mean to have prayer in your life? And he draws Elijah in this very instance in at the end, 
He says this, listen to James chapter five, verse 13. One of the most practical books you can read. In fact, this book is considered the Proverbs or the practical wisdom of life in the New Testament. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And you may stop there and you may go, Okay, righteous person. Does that mean am I not righteous enough? And listen to what it says. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore fruit. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Elijah wasn't someone different than us. Elijah's prayers enter into the pain, enter into the life because he knows the character of God is different. And this is where God's prophet shows God's power. Is that the timing here of when he comes in, for them, one of the understandings that Elijah's life spoke is above the other gods in the land. See, the reason Elijah comes out of nowhere is the Lord is raising up his voice in a place that has no voice anymore. They've heard so much that they've detached themselves. And so what he's saying is different than other gods. This is how God works. Because notice when the widow says, have you come to reveal my sin? Is the reason that you came into my life is to show me how sinful I am? And again, that is how we think of it. We think of life has to be balanced. I was just listening to a podcast I listen to every so often called ESPN Daily. It's like a 30-minute just catch up on sports news and stuff. Every now and then they throw in a story, and this one was really interesting. It was on the whole, it was called The Myth of 10,000 Hours. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the 10,000-hour rule. Uh, it's, it's, it's a rule that has been somehow become a rule worldwide. But it, it, was, a, it was something created uh, some time ago that came from uh, a lot of particularly sports, but really went into, uh, not only it began actually in a violin studio, but it moved out into sports and everywhere else, that if you spend 10,000 hours on something, you can become a master at it. Well, this story was actually to come in to say, there's actually a myth of the 10,000 hour rule, that debunking it, that in fact, studies showed that people who spent the same amount of hours did not have the same trajectory in what they were working on. That there is skill, there is something to that, but, but just doing 10,000 hours doesn't mean it's a rule of thumb. What's, but what's interesting about it is we all believe it because we want the rule. We want to be able to say, if I put it in, I get it out. And that's exactly what this widow is thinking and believes about God. This is not just an, this is an ancient view of God that we have exactly today. If we can advance faster by pumping more quarters into the God we serve, then he will give back to us what we want. And if life gets out of whack, isn't that when we say something's wrong with me? 
Or maybe my relationship with God is not right. You notice what Elijah does not do here in the wake of her son's death. He does not look at her and say, surely you must have done something. He doesn't give an answer. He shows compassion by entering in because he does not know. And he doesn't try to speak the mind of God to her. But here's what's interesting. We, like this widow, and so often, this is a prevailing view, even to David, the great king before, and others before him, and those who would come after, to think that if we get our our life in balance, then we have it right with God. If we put in the 10,000 hours, then we will be okay. Then sin really just becomes something we can manage and navigate. Grief and difficulties are things that are major speed bumps. What do you do with that? Is is God someone to be navigated? or, Or do we measure ourselves and our relationship with God by how well our day is doing or how well our successes are? I can tell you, we do that constantly. Because that was a prevailing view. I mean, for them, it was if you laid this at the altar... You expected rain for your crops. You expected wealth. You expected health. You expected these things. But that's what we hope. And when things happen in our lives, we expect God to be the same way. But what he shows in this passage, why this passage, why this account that is actually written in such classical Hebrew that it was known as it couldn't have been some fabricated story. It was immediately put into historical context because it was displaying the absolute difference of the character of God from anything else and even the way that we want to put him. I'll tell you, the number one thing that has driven me back to Christianity when I have struggled is suffering. And the reason that it really has is because there is no, the, the more I want to account for suffering or wiggle out from underneath it or try and navigate it or manage it or, or pray my way through it in a way that makes me feel better. Instead, what I realize is God's character isn't about me not feeling the suffering. It's about him entering into it. You see, the distinction of Christianity, the distinctive of God's power over anything else, and this is why he, he sends Elijah to a widow in the middle of enemy territory which were Phoenician gods ruled is because the only way they can understand the reality that God is who he says he is is if he enters into places that no other god can. Our suffering, our death, and our pain and to show that his character goes with us, that it is his character that's distinct, that he's not looking at it. I mean, this is, again, why Elijah reflects God's character and why his prayer is one of such rich compassion and deep crying out because it is distinct than any other. Why is Christianity different? Why in the New Testament is Jesus always being compared to Elijah? that those are constantly saying, is this Elijah again? 
Because Elijah knew, just like we do, looking forward, that there had to be someone that was coming that wouldn't just speak into the life, but come into death to bring us life. Notice what happens with his God, with his power in this passage with the son. Now, Elijah does something very unusual that is hard to describe, even theologically, um, that commentators disagree and have difficulty with. When he took the child and he stretches himself upon this child three times to breathe in, and some don't know if this is a, a normal ritual or not. All they can say is this is the very similar action of a prophet to say, to this death, I'm going to lay my life. To the pattern of stretching this child out as lifeless. I'm going to stretch my life, full of life body upon this child. And he does it three times, not knowing, but connecting his heart, both to God and the compassion to these people. But trusting that there is a God who is greater than death itself. And here's what's completely turns it on its head, is the fact that what Jesus does, different than Elijah, the reason that people are like, are you like, are you Elijah reborn? And Jesus, and, and finally, especially when Peter confesses, and they say, who do, when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, come back, Elijah, one of the prophets. Why did they say Elijah? Because he's bringing people up. He's feeding people. He's able to walk on the water. He's able to do things that are showing signs of life. This was a sign. What Jesus says right after they confess is, guess what? I'm going to go to death and rise again. Do you see what Jesus does to say he's the opposite in a sense? To us who are lifeless, he gives his life to bring life to us so that in his death, we're brought out. This is the distinction of Christianity. This is what God does different in who he is in Jesus Christ. And that's what this table even gives us a picture of. This table is a, an amazing picture of the extreme intimacy that God has for us. God's power in this is a power to save. I don't know if you notice, not only does he save this child physically, but at the end, the woman says something to Elijah. Now I know that, in verse 24, now that I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, in your mouth is truth. A statement of faith that she comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. See, physically the Lord heals him, but spiritually the Lord comes to heal them as well. And here's what's powerful about this table. This table is an intimate taste of what God has done in stretching his life. Extinguished to death so that you may taste the life that you have. That is why it is considered body and blood. That's why Christianity is distinct in the way that it doesn't just talk about suffering. It doesn't just talk about death in ways that anything else does. It comes in a way that clothes his very self to enter into it, to show that God's power 
is unlike any other. You know what you'll see over the course of Elijah's ministry and life in the Bible is you'll see this distinction over and over. And I think what we need to see isn't so much the power of Elijah, or I hope I get to pray like Elijah, but that he's pointing us to the one that loves him so that he is, his heart is connected to because he knows there's only one who has done what this God has done. And it is by his death that he gives you life. This table isn't a barter. I wanna encourage you, if you're here this morning, this isn't about coming forward and saying, hey, look, I'm taking this table so, God, that you owe me. (laughs) Or that it warrants you to come to this table because you're sitting here in this church. But what this table is, is Jesus's table. It's not my table. And by coming to taste this, you're saying, I have this intimate relationship with the Lord God. I don't, just like Elijah, I don't know his mind. You may be coming to this table with so much going on in your life. But what you can taste here is that there's a God that enters into every bit of it. He is not afraid to do that. And whether he brings life out of death now or he does it, in the life to come, he will do it. That is why I say every week at this table, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. If death can't even hold him, know that there is no death that is beyond his grasp and his touch. There's no breath as we sung in that incredible song of how deep the Father's love for us. Listen to this line before we break the bread. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. His dying breath has brought me life. That is what this table is. Let's stand together.